Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this keynote presentation from the 2022 Marxist Winter School, Fred Weston, editor of Marxist.com, explains what makes Marxism so revolutionary and why we need the ideas of Marxism now more than ever. I'm not going to be able to give, obviously, an, ex an expose of every aspect of Marxist theory. It's impossible in 45 minutes. But I will attempt to outline at least some of the main points. And I hope to show the validity of Marxism as a method of analysis, its relevance today, and hopefully stimulate you to find out more and to study Marxist theory. Um, Lenin explained that without revolutionary theory, there is no revolutionary action. See, theory for Marxists is a guide to action. And I hope that as a result of all this, those of you who are not yet members will join the international Marxist tendency and help us in the fight to change this world. Now, there are other sessions in this school on Marxist economics, uh, on philosophy, and therefore I won't go into the details of every aspect because there are sessions that you can go to which will be obviously a more detailed discussion of those things. Now you could ask, what is Marxism? Well, there's several answers. It's a philosophical outlook. It's an economic theory. It's a way of looking at history. And of course, it's the doctrine of the class struggle. Now, working class people have had to fight for everything they've been able to gain. Healthcare, education, pensions. These were not given free to the working class. And it has to continue to fight to keep them. And in this fight, the working class has not always won. In fact, we are, we're actually in a period of the last several decades of constant attack, attack, attack from the bourgeois on all the gains of the past. Now, we are in effect in a class war. And in wars, both sides study the enemy. They study the past battles, past wars and they try to learn from the mistakes made. The bourgeois have a lot of study centers for this purpose. Now we, we need our own study center and this school is, is part of that. Now, as Marxists, we have a materialist approach. Now, some, you know, the word materialist sometimes has a bad connotation. Materialist means that you want a big house and a swimming pool and lots of money. From a philosophical point of view, being materialist means we base ourselves on the real objective world, i.e. on matter in all its different structures. But it's not enough to be materialist because matter is in constant motion and in a process of change. And that's where the dialectics comes into it. That's why we pay attention to the laws of dialectics as developed, um, well, first by Hegel and then by developed further by Marx and Engels. Now, we can say that dialectics is the science of the general laws of motion and development of nature, of human society, of thought. Engels explained that everything is in a process of coming into being and passing away. You see, dialectics takes each fact, each event, not in isolation, but as, but as part of a whole. It's a bit like the difference between a single photograph 
and a film. The photograph tells you something about that specific moment, what came before and what comes after. You see, mechanical thinking tries to fix everything and separate each aspect one from the other. Marxism looks at each one and brings them together and see how they interact on each other. It's actually in practice. It's thanks to this method that science in reality has moved forward. Even if they're not fully conscious of it, that's the method that serious science uses. My Trotsky, in one of his texts, he makes the example of, um, you know, is a pound of sugar a pound of sugar? And you can say, well, two bags of sugar cannot be exactly the same. And then you say even the same bag of sugar is not the same, it's not the same as itself over a period of time because it's in a process of change. Now, I don't advise you to use this method when you go and buy sugar next time you go to a shop. Imagine you go into a shop and you say to the shopkeeper, this, you're selling me this pound of sugar for a dollar. But you know that while I was talking to you, it's no longer a pound of sugar. So I'm going to pay you 99 cents. You know what the shopkeeper would say to you. So from a, from a, a practical every everyday approach, obviously the formal logic has a role. We're not saying that we should stop measuring sugar in terms of grams or pounds. But if you want a deeper understanding from a scientific point of view, you do have to look more closely and you do have to look at the process of change because, you know, somebody could say, yeah, but the sugar is the same as itself in a given moment. I'll ask you a question. Does anybody know here how long a moment lasts? You break it down and you realize that the moment can be halved. So even when you say it's the same as itself in a given moment, it's not enough because there's a constant process of change at molecular level. Now, for everyday purposes, as I said, we don't need to do that. But we know that those small changes, which are imperceptible in a given moment, over a long period of time, can produce some quite radical changes. And, and we understand that the accumulation of lots of small changes can, at a certain point, produce quite a dramatic change. You know, Hegel developed the laws of dialectics, i.e. There, there isn't a smooth, continuous, imperceptible change that goes on forever. But the accumulation of these small changes at a certain point lead to leaps, in effect, to revolutions. There are what, what he calls breaks in continuity. And this is due to the internal contradictions in every process. And the fact is, you see, we see this confirmed throughout science. Because, you see, you can, you, you, can also, you can accept that things are moving and changing, but even that is not enough. For example, evolution is accepted, but it, it can be seen as just a gradual, slow, uninterrupted process. So you can accept the concept of change, but you can reject the concept of dialectics. This is actually at the heart of the difference between the reformism of the leaders of the labor movement and a revolutionary Marxist approach. Reformism came into being as the idea that you could reform capitalism out of existence gradually, slowly. It would be so slow and imperceptible that even the capitalists wouldn't realize what you're trying to do. One day, when the final piece of this gradual change appears, we wake up one day and we say, hey, we live under socialism. It's, um, 
I mean, if you, if you want to apply it to, to me, even making a cup of tea, you know, when you boil the water, it doesn't just gradually increase in temperature without, and, and you can't, you can't tell when it's ready to put the tea in. If it was like that, you'd be sitting there forever waiting for the moment to put the tea bag in that water. No, but but we all know there is a moment in which it boils and it's ready and you put the tea bag. There is a qualitative change. Now, th this, this brings me to one of the laws of dialectics, which is the transformation of quantity into quality and then vice versa, quality into quantity. I mean, I know it's, it's, it's a, it, it seems banal and to have to even repeat this, but, you know, ice stays as ice until it becomes water and water stays as water until it becomes steam. And those two moments are sudden, very rapid changes. Everything we look at, if we look at it more closely, we see that qualitative differences, very important qualitative differences, can be determined by a very small increase in the quantitative changes. And that's because when, you, when there's an accumulation of many, many small gradual changes, it reaches a point where it's sufficient just one or two small changes and you get what is basically a revolutionary change. If you look at the Human Genome Project and you look at the, the, the differences between species, you look at the differences between Homo sapiens and, say, the gorilla or the chimpanzee, the actual percentage difference is very, very small. And yet that change, that, that difference is the different is, is a very very important qualitative difference apes are very similar to us and yet they're very different at the same time we are the only ones that have made this enormous leap in consciousness and knowledge and understanding or let's take another example climate change according to an ipcc report um, they calculate that average global temperatures have increased about 1.5 uh, degrees centigrade since the pre-industrial period it can seem if you look at the actual figure itself if you take the, the, the how hot and how cold things can be in reality it seems to be a very very small difference it, it makes a huge difference in terms of the consequences for us on this planet it's actually part of the process we're living in. It's part of the changing consciousness of millions of billions of people. We're seeing tropical storms where previously there were none. We have wildfires. There's one now taking place in Argentina. I just saw it on the news. You, you had it in Canada and the United States. We have the, the other side is uh, in flooding where previously we had none. You see in Brazil, the rain destroyed all those that killings over 70 people just the other day. So we have flooding and severe drought at the same time. This is having an impact on agriculture, having an impact on the natural habitats of many species. All this is in effect a kind of revolution taking place before our very eyes. This accumulation of small gradual change in the temperature is now producing these dramatic events. Now, um, there is, on the other hand, there's a mechanical way of thinking which tries to eliminate contradiction. And yet, they're try by doing that, they're actually trying to eliminate life itself. Contradiction is the essence of existence of all things. The structure of the atom is a contradiction between the positive and the negative charges. And we see this, it's in the atom. 
the electricity itself functions according to these laws. Magnetism, the north-south pole on the planet. Movement itself is a contradiction. So Marxists do not try to eliminate contradiction. We look for the contradictions. It's through them that we understand the development. Now our approach is also this, that we don't see that human knowledge reaches a point where it has a, a reached an absolute truth. In the process of studying the world, we see the development of theories that in a given moment appear to be true. And they're true at one level, such as Newtonian physics. But as we accumulate greater and greater knowledge, we realize that the, the previous truth, while explaining it at a certain level, does not explain the new developments. And that's where we go back to the pound of sugar. When you study subatomic uh, particles, or you study the, grand, the great dimensions of the universe, you realize that the practical everyday common sense doesn't work. You know, I have a light switched on here, and I know that the light bounces off me, and you can see me. But we've reached a point where we've, you know, for example, the black hole, where light goes in, and it doesn't bounce back. Well, not immediately, anyway. Uh, um, and we see a phenomenon which is inexplicable if we apply the logic that we're used to. Basically, it requires a greater knowledge, a greater accumulation of understanding in order to understand the phenomenon at a much higher level. I'm saying all this because this applies also to human society and the class struggle, which I will go into later. Now, another law of dialectics is the negation of the negation. Now, sometimes these terms can seem a bit complicated. Now, what does that mean? I, I, I don't want to go into this too. I haven't got much time, but the, um, Hegel gives the example of the, you know, the bud that disappears when the blossom breaks, breaks through. You know, you have a flower um, and, and uh, the regeneration of a plant through this process. The seed is the negation of the plant that gave it birth. In its turn, the plant is the negation of the seed that gave the plant birth. And this is everywhere. In different the different variations of this exist throughout uh, the you know the living world and also the the, the 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 inorganic world. Stars are formed by the negation of the previous cloud of matter, and that process allows for planets to form and life to emerge. But in its turn, we know this will all be destroyed, and there'll be another negation, and new rebirth. Now, if we apply this to um, to life, we realize that birth and death are part of this process, that we can apply this to history and our understanding of history and to, the, and to our understanding of society as a whole. Now, there's another aspect of um, Marxism, historical materialism, which allows us to see all the changes in human society um, with a pattern, with laws. Uh, we, we can apply this to class society in the, you know, in the process of human beings um, developing their productive forces, developing their means of living, basically, housing, food, etc. Now, obviously, it's, I'm not going to give here detailed uh, analysis of every nuance, every detail, every uh, change that doesn't quite fit this pattern, because we know that that's not how society is. But simplifying things, we can say there was a period when human beings were hunter-gatherers, where there were no classes, because there was no property, there was no private property. Society was, excuse me if I use this term, I know that it's not politically correct sometimes, 
you don't know what you're worth they were primitive all all human society has gone through that stage now unfortunately it has negative connotations primitive means to some people oh simple whatever to us it just means the description of a certain phase of human development you know primus is latin for first it mean it simply means one of the early stages now we see how humans went from the the the, primi the primitive hunter gatherer period gradually over a very long period of human development they began to accumulate knowledge now it was a very slow and very long process but eventually it led to the development of technique tools agriculture which allowed humans to produce far more than they could previously produce now this gradual accumulation of change eventually produced a revolution you could call it the agricultural revolution instead of looking for plants you plant them instead of chasing animals and catching them you 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 herd them together accumulation um, al allowed for the division of society into classes that's the material base for the emergence of the first class societies society has gone through various forms of class uh, division we have feudalism and now we have capitalism now each change is a negation of the previous society but what we have to say is that the negation of the negation will itself be negated feudalism was the negation of the previous society in turn it was negated by the, the birth of capitalism but capitalism didn't suddenly appear it began to develop inside feudalism but just as it happened to feudalism capitalism will face the same destiny now the problem of course is every time a new class society comes into being the people at the top have an interest in saying now this is the end of the process i'm sure that the feudal landlords were very happy with the society they lived in and their propaganda machine the catholic church tell everybody this is the best possible world you can live in but unfortunately for them the dialectical process of change didn't stop the accumulation of contradictions and the development of technique and the greater knowledge eventually produced the basis for the emergence of the capitalist mode of production and th at a certain point revolution is posed as the only answer to the crisis of that system that explains the civil war in england in the 1640s explains cromwell explains the french revolution capitalism came into existence not through gradual reform as the reformists would love us to think just as the the limits of feudalism prepared the basis for the capitalist uh, development capitalism in its turn through its internal contradictions prepares a new revolution see that's why we look we seek out the contradictions within the capitalist system which will indicate the degree of crisis within that system and we prepare for it the internal contradictions of capitalism lead to crisis now you have a separate discussion on economics so i'm not going to go into the details of that but the crisis eventually leads to a worsening of the living conditions of millions of people these quantitative changes reach a point of qualitative change and produce revolutionary leaps that is actually what we're living through at this particular in this particular epoch so what we're seeing here is the preparation of the negation of capitalism the new society is already developing within the old so you see marxism is a method of analysis used in science 
It can be used in science to look at history, to look at economics, and to look at the development of society as a whole. It's this method which allowed Marx to develop his economic theory and to look at capitalism and how it works in all its contradictions. Now, you see, capitalism goes through periods. They're not, not every period is the same as every other. Um, we see periods of deep crisis and also periods of sustained growth. Now, when there's a period of growth, we, we, we see the illusions in the system. Now, the average person, if they see 20 or 30 years of economic boom, they don't say, oh, just one moment, uh, where's volume three of Capital? Ah, it's up there. Because, huh, yes, there's been 30 years of boom, but we know that this system is condemned. No, the average person says, well, it's been good so far. Why can't it continue? That is the basis of the conservatism that we find in society. It's the basis also for the strengthening of reformism and the bureaucracy inside the labor movement. You see, society moves in longer periods. You see, if I put a pot of water to boil, everybody here knows that within a minute, maybe, it's going to boil. Nobody here would say, ah, ah, ah. Just a moment. This time, I'm going to boil the water, and it's not going to boil. It will stay cold. Everybody here laughs because they realize what a, what a stupid thing it would be to say such a thing. But you see, as I said, society is not like a pot of water on, a, on some gas. It takes a lot longer to boil. And if for 20 or 30 years it seems that everything is okay, you know, you have uh, health care, free education housing, jobs, decent pay, then the average consciousness will be things are going reasonably okay. And when capitalism goes through such a period of sustained growth, the ideas of Karl Marx are derided as irrelevant, wrong, utopian. Now this happened back in the 1890s. We saw it in Germany, where even so-called Marxists drew the wrong conclusions. You know, Bernstein was a follower of Karl Marx. But you see, he looked around and he said, well, M Marx said the crisis would be every 10 years. In reality, what Marx did was he stated what had happened. When he was writing, that was more or less the pattern in the 1800s. When, when capitalism continued to grow for longer than 10 years, oh my God, oh my God, Marx must be wrong. And he drew the conclusion, we don't need to overthrow the system. We don't need a revolutionary change. We can change it slowly. Thankfully, there were Marxists who had not lost their understanding. Thanks to our Rosa, who answered Bernstein. Excellent book to read. It's not too long either, you see. Uh, I advise you to read it. The, 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 unfortunately for Bernstein, just as he developed his theory, capitalism was about to enter into a crisis once more. Not only was it entering into crisis, it prepared the conditions for the First World War, the crash of 1929, and the Second World War. Utter barbarism. This was a deep crisis of the system that lasted for decades. And what came with that crisis? The Russian Revolution. Now, was it just a Russian phenomenon? Because some people say that. Oh, it was just Russian conditions. Well, look at the period from 1917 to the end of the 1930s. Um, so, the, um, we have Russia 1917. 
But you have the German Revolution in 1918, the Hungarian in 1919, the Italian in 1920, a few years later the Chinese Revolution of 1926, the powerful general strike in Britain in 1926, the same year, and then the, the big sit-down strikes at the occupation of the factories in France in 1936 and the Spanish Civil War, which was the Spanish Revolution in 1936-39. That crisis prepared revolution after revolution after revolution. It's a separate discussion, but we could, be, we could have now been living under socialism for the past hundred years. The last hundred years could have been avoided. Unfortunately, there was no leadership the class was defeated. That defeat, combined with the massive destruction of the Second World War, created new conditions. Um, the, the, the capitalists pride themselves at the post-war boom. Reformists used it again to say, you see, capitalism can work. And between roughly 1946 to 1973, a roughly 25-year period, we saw an unprecedented development of the productive forces. And particularly in the advanced capitalist countries, a significant increase in the standard of living of the working class itself. It seemed that all the evils of the past had gone. The jobs, there was good wages, free education, free health care, pensions. All of this gave the idea to the masses that things are, are now a lot better. Today is good and tomorrow will be even better. I'm simplifying things a little bit. I can't go into the whole history. There were many movements and there was a lot of class conflict in, the, in that period too. But the system was, in an, was within an upward trajectory of, uh, of economic uh, development. In practice, everything Marx said seemed to be from another planet. To defend Marxism in, those, in that period wasn't easy. It's like saying, it's going to boil, but it's going to take a bit longer than usual. Practical level, to ordinary people, you're telling me there's going to be a crisis of the system. For the last 20 years, it's been pretty good. Now, that period had an impact on consciousness as well. The, the, the ideas of reformism were strengthened in that period because they seemed to be true. You Marxists, you say we must have class struggle. Look at how things have improved since the Second World War. But you see, sometimes the truth is a difficult thing to defend. But sooner or later, the truth comes to the top. In that period, yes, everything seemed to deny what Marx was saying. But then they were rudely interrupted by the real process of development of capitalism with the crisis in the 1970s and that also produced class struggle on a huge level but you see marxism is constantly under attack the number of times i've seen articles in the bourgeois press declaring the death of marxism i find it rather strange that i have to declare the death of something more than once i don't know in canada in italy when somebody dies they put up these posters and out with the name and announcing the death. You know, in Italy they do this in the special places where you stick these posters up so everybody knows that person has died and you can pay your respects if you wish. Never seen the same person appearing twice on those posters. Never mind three, five, ten or a hundred times pronouncing the death of capitalism. Of, of, sorry, we keep announcing the death of capitalism. They keep announcing the death of Marxism. Um... Surely, if you announce the death today, it means last time you, you were wrong. Is this, Marxism has never died. They want it to die. They want, people, they want people to believe that it is dead. And this has happened many times. 
there are moments in history in which it seems, yes, it's dead, it's finished, Marxism is finished because of a terrible defeat of the working class or because of a tremendous boom of the capitalist system. And therefore Marxists have always had to defend the basic ideas uh, of Marxism against these attacks. These attacks sometimes come from within the Marxist movement itself. Bernstein was part of the Marxist movement. Um, we've seen it. Lenin had to do it. He had to defend Marxist philosophy. Trotsky had to do it in the 30s in the American SWP amongst the American Trotskyists. And now it's up to us to defend Marxism. Now, you see, the, the problem with the capitalists is that they no, they're no longer in the post-war period. But actually, we're in the deepest crisis they've ever um, lived through. And that's why they need to make people believe that Marxism is dead. Uh, because Marxism actually explains how the system works. Now, I'm a convinced Marxist, and I would say the strength of Marxism is because it is true. It's the truth. It's the truth. It's the way the system works. And the truth is very difficult to destroy. It eventually emerges. You know, Galileo was forced to deny the fact that the Earth moves. He, he, he understood that the Earth moves around the Sun. They forced him to, do, to, to retract, but the truth eventually emerges. They say that uh, the Earth does not move. And we have always said capitalism enters into crisis. Now let's look at a few facts. Now Marx talked about the polarization of wealth the accumulation of immense wealth at one end of society, growing poverty at the other end. So let's look at some facts. Was Marx wrong? Well, half of the world's wealth belongs to the top 1% of the population. 85% of the wealth of the world is in the hands of the top 10%. And what is left, the 15% of the wealth, that is divided amongst the remaining 90% of the world population. And look at the bottom of society. Um, the bottom 50% of the population owns barely 1% of the wealth. Well, I think Marx got something right there. That is a clear indication of the process that's been taking place. What about globalization? Did Marx have anything to say about that? I'm sure you've read it in the Communist Manifesto, in which he says in chapter one, the need of a constantly expanding markets for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere bad seeing it was written in the 1840s how was it that Mar how was it that marx was able to make such predictions because he analyzed how the system works and where it would inevitably have to go a few more facts 50 companies of in the world the top 50 global companies um they they produce nearly 28 percent of world gdp imagine that it's a huge amount it was 23% in 1990, so it's been growing. This is a process of monopolization, i.e. the big companies eating up the small companies and becoming bigger and bigger and dominating more and more of the world market. We have companies which are richer than entire countries. In, in, in 2017, for example, Walmart 
earned more than the whole of Belgium. Walt Disney, more than the whole of a country like Bulgaria. The list is endless. Now, this is an example. This is the concentration of capital and monopolization, which is the logical outcome of competition. In the market, the strong ones survive through competition and they eat up the small guys. Another famous term of Marx is that capitalism creates its own grave diggers, i.e. it creates the working class. Now, another, the, the, the capitalist class would like us to believe that the working class doesn't exist. Now, those of you who are at university will know that when you go for a coffee break to drink your coffee, that coffee wasn't made by a worker because the working class has ceased to exist. Who makes things? I'm, I'm, I, when I listen to this, I think, okay, well, who makes all this stuff? Who makes the shoes you wear? Who, make, who makes the, 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 the mobile phone you use? The truth is this, the working class has never been as powerful as it is today. The latest figures I have found for the world workforce for 2021 is 3.3 billion people. Now, if you, add, if you add to these, those who have retired on a pension, if you if you add to this the non-working partners of these workers, if you add the children of these workers, then the working class is the absolute majority of the world population. Precisely when they want us to believe that it doesn't exist, it has actually never been so powerful in numbers. Of these, 630 million live in poverty in spite of having a job. And poverty is classed as having, as, as earning less than $3.20 a day. So I suppose if you earn $4 a day, you're not poor. <laughs> According to the International Labour Organization, this figure of the working poor is actually going to grow in the coming period. The development of technology, Marx looked at that. He says, the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production. Now, I'm just touching on things now because I don't have time, but a few other aspects of Marxism. I invite you to read and discuss and study these other aspects as well. The question of the state, for example. What is it? Is it uh, a neutral arbiter between the classes? Or is it a tool in the hands of the ruling class? Lenin gave a very good answer in State and Revolution. The other question is the family. The present form of the family emerged with class society. Now, of course, people have always had babies, and I think they're going to continue doing it for a while, hopefully. <laughs> but the, po the point is this. The form of the family has changed with class society, and it will change if we change the structure of the society. Now, another big question is, so far, you think, wow, this sounds pretty good. I hope that's what you think. But then you think, aha, what about the Soviet Union? Hasn't communism been tried and it's failed? Well, Marxism, I'm sorry to say, does actually have an analysis and an explanation of what happened there. I haven't got time to develop that here, but re read that excellent text by Leon Trotsky called The Revolution Betrayed, which analyzes what happened. There are material and objective reasons why that happened. You know, how a bureaucracy emerged in an isolated backward country. And if we really want to point the finger who was responsible for that, the leaders of the Second International, they failed to lead the working class when the, when the revolution had matured in a country like Germany and therefore condemned Russia to isolation. What we can, what, the lesson we can draw from that is 
to highlight the need for an international movement for socialism. That's why we're called the international Marxist tendency. We understand that we cannot achieve socialism in one country. We can start in one country, but it must become international. Now, I had a few things here to say about Marxism and science, but I would invite you to read Reason in Revolt um, to get a deeper understanding of that. Application of Marxist philosophy to modern science. But I have a book here. It's by Stephen, Stephen Jay Gould. I don't know if you can see it. It's called Ever Since Darwin. I haven't got time to quote, but he points out that Engels had something to say about evolution. The brain didn't develop first. What developed first was the upright posture and the freeing of the hands, which allowed for work to take place, labour, and through that, the necessary development of the brain later on. The brain developed, the brain developed as a result of labour. He says that the reason they ignored Engels because of the prejudices they had. Now, uh, that's just one little example. Um, to, to, to rapidly move on, um, you know, Mar as I said at the beginning, Marx is constantly being attacked. I have an article from The Economist from 2017. And the, the, the clever ones, they always start off by saying, well, Marx was right about this and right about this. This article says that Marx is predicted, M Marx, sorry, predicted that capitalism would become more concentrated as it advanced. Then they say, Marx was also right that capitalism would be increasingly dominated by finance. The number of times I've seen them saying, well, Marx was right on this, Marx was right on this, but his conclusions were wrong. Well, of course, if you are a capitalist that benefits from capitalist society, you're not going to like the conclusions that Marx reached because it means you have to be abolished. Who likes being abolished? The article ends like this. The best way to sell, sorry, the best way to save yourself from being Marx's Next victim is to start taking him seriously. We do take Marx seriously, but not because we fear becoming victims of Marx. You see, that article is addressed to the capitalists themselves. But here in front of me now, I have different kinds of people. I'm talking to you guys, young comrades, older comrades, students, workers. If you're here, it means you think there's something seriously wrong with this system, a nation, a way out. So we take Marx seriously, not to negate him, but to apply his method. But I'm just going to conclude by just giving you a few quotes from Marx and Engels. Famous one. It is not, consci it is not consciousness that determines life, but life that determines consciousness. Yes. That's in the German ideology. A, few page, a, few, a couple of pages later, Marx and Engels say the following. For the practical materialist, i.e. the communist, it is a question of revolutionizing the existing world, of practically coming to grips with and changing things found in existence. The, the other famous quote from the general rules of the International Working Men's Association in 1864, where, where, he says, I won't quote the whole thing, but he says, uh, the emancipation of the working classes must be conquered by the working classes themselves. And the final objective is the abolition of all class rule. Um, I will skip these one. 
Um, and then on this question of, you know, sometimes you say, oh, you meet workers. Oh, he's not very advanced. He's not very progressive. This is what Marx says about that in the Holy Family. You know, the other name for the Holy Family is the, uh, the critique of critical criticism, which I think is French is la critique de la critique critique. Anyway, this is very interesting what, he say, what they say. It is not a question of what this or that proletarian or even the whole proletariat at the moment regards as its aim. It is a question of what the proletariat is and what, in accordance with this being, it will historically be compelled to do. We apply dialectics to the working class as well. Changes, gradual, small changes, and then suddenly you have this leap in understanding. Experience teaches and the working class draws conclusions from the experience. The most moderate worker can become a revolutionary. You have inflation of 10, 20, 30 percent. And there's many workers who up till now have been quite conservative will be demanding wage increases. Look around the world now. Last year we saw this wave of strikes in the United States. Today in Britain there is a very militant mood developing in the working class. Read our article from, on the website on Turkey, the strikes in Turkey. Massive wave of strikes all across Turkey. Inflation in Turkey is 50%. Workers cannot afford not to fight anymore. Look at the strike wave in Poland. This is the class struggle starting to rise again. Crisis of capitalism is once again creating the conditions for class struggle. And the ideas of Karl Marx are as relevant if not more relevant today than when he first developed them. But this is my last point, just one minute. The ideas by themselves, even if they are correct, don't change society. These ideas that we have defended must become the ideas of the masses. And there's this fantastic quote from Marx in 1844. It's in the introduction to the contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. And this is what Marx says. Theory, and so far we've been having, I suppose, a theoretical discussion. He says this, theory also becomes a material force as soon as it has gripped the masses. Our role as a Marxist organization work to make these ideas the ideas of the masses. Crisis of capitalism is making it far easier for us now, but we're still a small force. For us to be able to take these ideas to the millions, we, we must create a stronger organization. So if you haven't done so yet, join the IMT and help us do this. It's your future and the future of humanity which is at stake. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte.
for international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.